seemingly difficult or awkward, I'm uh, prepared to take it, so uh, please do feel free to ask later on. In the uh, last couple of uh, generations, there has been uh, a dramatic shift in people's attitudes towards gay people. It's evident, I think, in a whole host of ways. So uh, openly gay celebrities now are no longer sidelined. There would have been a time when uh, if a celebrity was gay, they would have done pretty much anything to uh, cover that up and to keep that from other people. But uh, now you tend to find that if a celebrity comes out and admits to being gay, uh, it tends to add to their popular appeal and to their commercial value. And if ever you wanted proof that a culture has changed so dramatically, surely it is uh, Welsh rugby international there, Gareth Thomas, being able to publicly come out and declare himself to be gay as he did a few years ago, that really provides all the proof that you need. That would never really have happened, uh, probably not even ten years ago, uh, let alone a generation ago. Uh, Gay romance films are now pretty much mainstream. Probably five, ten years ago, a film such as Brokeback Mountain uh, would have been uh, consigned to the uh, specialist arty cinemas, but uh, it was in fact a mainstream Hollywood Uh, blockbuster, this uh, uh, film of uh, gay romance. I'm sure none of us here will have uh, seen that or admit to having seen it if we have. Uh, Same-sex relationships are, of course, now legally recognised too. Legislation has changed uh, all around the world. People have introduced uh, legislation for civil partnerships and, of course, a number of governments have already introduced legislation for full same-sex marriage with a number of other governments talking about... uh, doing the same thing. And a number of world leaders now have uh, come out and said that they are in favour of uh, same-sex marriage. Oh, Johnny's taken away my picture of President Obama. There was a picture there. We had a little bit of adjustment on the colour. So that is President Obama, who says, I hesitated on gay marriage, but I've just concluded that for me personally, it's important for me to go ahead and affirm that I think same-sex couples should be able to get married. That was President Obama in an ABC News interview uh, earlier this year. And that caused quite a storm over in the USA um, with President Obama making that uh, very clear declaration. So this uh, cultural backdrop in mind, it's no surprise to us, I'm sure, that uh, the church finds itself really under immense pressure to change our stance on same-sex relationships. There's cultural pressure, there is legislative pressure, there's media pressure, There's pressure from many influential voices, uh, even within the church. And to Christian leaders who maintain that same-sex sexual relationships go against God's revealed will in the Bible, the uh, accusation is levelled that we're maybe out of touch, intolerant, or uh, even homophobic and anti-gay. Now, as evangelical Christians, the temptation, of course, when we're confronted with this uh, kind of cultural tidal wave of popular opinion, the temptation, I think, is either to retreat and become silently ashamed of the gospel and of gospel teaching on human sexuality. Or we may be tempted simply to go on the offensive and focus all of our efforts on maybe lobbying Parliament, uh, protesting at uh, various proposed changes to the law. But if we're true evangelicals, then we ought, I believe, really to challenge ourselves by asking this question. Do I believe that the gospel that is the good news of Jesus Christ. Do I believe that the gospel is good news for gay people too? Is it good news for Christians? And perhaps there are some Christians here this evening who struggle with same-sex attraction, struggle with their sexual identity. I'm trying at this point not to make any eye contact with anybody in particular in case you think, he's looking at me, he's looking at me, I'm not looking at anybody, just, just to be sure. Uh, well, as we focus on this uh, 
subject of walking with gay friends, I want to focus on thinking really around three main questions this evening, just to give you an idea of where we're going in the structure. Firstly, I'm going to ask, what are the causes of same-sex attraction? What is it that causes some people to be attracted to those of the same sex rather than the opposite sex? Is there a gay gene? Uh, We're going to talk about uh, that subject and hopefully help explode some of the myths around it. Secondly, we're going to think, what does the Bible teach about same-sex practice? Not what do we think it teaches, what have we heard it teaches, what does it actually say uh, when we look at various Bible passages? And then thirdly, we're going to finish by thinking, particularly, what hope does the Gospel hold out to those for whom this is a personal issue? So if we are seeking to walk with gay friends, by gay friends, what I mean by that is perhaps those that we know, I'm sure a number of us will have colleagues or neighbours or friends or family members who identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual, how can we actually get alongside them and what hope does the gospel hold out to them? But also what hope does the gospel hold out to those who are Christians who perhaps don't identify as gay but who admit to having a struggle uh, in this whole area of same-sex attraction? So that's where we're going uh, this evening. But before we tackle the first of those questions, I think it might be helpful just to spend a little bit of time tonight uh, giving you a little bit of my own background and and telling something of my own story because I want you to know that I don't teach on this subject from from the comfort of some kind of theological bubble. This is an intensely personal issue uh, for me. Uh, I grew up in a church-going family, so I was taken to church from a very young age. I was taken to Sunday school, so I grew up really with a, a belief in God from as young as I can remember, a belief in the truth of the Bible. Uh, But from around about the age of 10 or 11, I became conscious of feeling attractions to some of my male friends rather than to my female friends. That was quite a a shock to me. It was quite a confusing time. Not something I'd ever chosen, but just something simply that was there. And so I began as a 10, 11, 12-year-old to sort of battle through these thoughts. What does this actually mean? Uh, How can this possibly happen to me? I believe in God and I know that the Bible is very negative about homosexual practice. So, uh, you know, how can I reconcile these two things together? And that was a real struggle for me. And I didn't uh, feel at at that age that I could share what was going on with anybody else. I certainly couldn't talk to my parents, couldn't really talk to friends at school. Things were a lot less open than they would probably be today. And uh, to be honest, the very last place I was going to go was going to be the church because the only time that I'd ever heard Christians talking about homosexuality, it was always in a very judgmental or very harsh or sometimes very condemning way. So I was left, if you like, as as I entered into teenage years to try and work through these things by myself and work through what this meant for me. And uh, around about the age of 17, I think it was, I began to identify inwardly as uh, being gay. I, I remember picking up a uh, a book off my parents' uh, bookshelves and it was all about sort of puberty, adolescence. I remember reading in there that some people might have a phase of feeling attraction to the same sex. I remember reading, you know, I'm thinking, well, if, if this is a phase, it's a very long phase, it's not going away. And then I came across this word gay. <clears throat> and I believed that, that that was probably the label that I ought then to attribute to myself. I didn't want to tell anybody else that. I certainly didn't want to be open about it. In fact, I wanted to do everything possible to hide that from other people. But uh, inwardly, I certainly felt that I must be uh, gay. And I was then faced with a choice, really, at at 17. I either keep going to church, keep reading the Bible, keep, quote, trying to be good. That's what I thought a Christian was in those days. Or I was going to explore this emerging sexuality. I didn't want to be promiscuous. I didn't want to have many partners. Actually, my my dream, if you like, as a 17-year-old boy was simply to find one special person get to know and to spend my life with and I did meet a guy of my own age we became great friends over a period of time we fell in love and we entered into this long term relationship together and that relationship lasted from 
uh, age 17 through to 24. But at age 24, there was quite a dramatic turnaround, really, in my life. Um, and that was initiated over a period of time, really. I think God working in my heart and mind, convicting me that the way I was living was displeasing to him. And I don't think simply because of my sexuality, but just because my whole life really wasn't focused on him. I pretty much moved away from the church at that stage, wasn't reading the Bible, didn't even have any sense of uh, trying to be good, if you like, trying to be a Christian. And uh, so God brought me under conviction. And I remember one Sunday morning simply walking into a church. This was in uh, Bournemouth on the south coast of England, where I was living at the time. And actually, I remember being, I was living opposite this particular church with my partner at the time, and uh, we had an apartment that overlooked the entrance, and often we'd, I, w- I would look out on a Sunday morning and see all of these Christians, quite a big uh, Baptist church down in Bournemouth, and they would flood out of this church, and they'd be laughing and joking and smiling. One of those churches, you know, where people are happy when they come out. Yeah. <laughs> there are still a few. I'm sure you all come from churches like that as well, don't you? But I remember looking at these Christians and thinking there's something about them that was appealing And in fact, I felt quite envious. Here I was, I was in a loving relationship, I was very happy in that relationship, I had quite a good job, Um, I had a nice car, I had a good income, I was able to have foreign holidays. In in a worldly sense, I had pretty much everything I I ever had dreamt of. And yet, deep down, I knew that I was unhappy, and God was also convicting me, really, that the life I was leading was a life that wasn't pleasing to him. So I walked into that church one Sunday morning, I can't remember an awful lot about the service itself, except for me there was a very tangible sense of the presence of God uh, in that place on that day. And that was very powerful to me. And I remember talking to one of the ministers of the church, and we subsequently met up the following week. I met him in in his study at the church. He didn't know anything about my background. Uh, I didn't tell him anything about my background. And he simply asked, look, do you mind if I read something to you from God's word? And I said, yeah, sure, that's fine. So he opened up the Bible and he read to me some verses from uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, some very well-known verses I'm sure will be familiar to us. Jeremiah chapter 29, where God says, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. And I remember uh, hearing those words uh, as if they were God's direct call, really, to me. I remember at the time breaking down in tears, not something I was in the habit of doing and certainly not in front of anybody else, Um, but it was very, very powerful that this was God calling me, if you like, to put my trust in him. I, by that stage, already heard the gospel, so I knew what it meant by then to be a Christian through faith in Jesus Christ, and so I took those words really as God's call to put my trust in him through Christ for forgiveness of sins and salvation. That was the beginning, really, of quite a dramatic turnaround in my life. So I knew immediately, nobody had to tell me, that becoming a Christian meant that I had to get out of that same-sex relationship. That was quite a difficult thing to do, but I knew it was the right thing to do. But I want to stress that becoming a Christian wasn't, in any sense, a negative experience. I think sometimes as Christians we talk about all the things we, we give up, and of course there, are, there is a cost to following Christ. There are things to be given up. But for me, becoming a Christian was a very positive experience as well. Um, I mean, just really as that prophecy from Jeremiah said, God, God had plans to prosper me and not to harm me, plans to give me hope 
and a future. And that's certainly been my experience as I look back over the last 20 years or so now that I've become a Christian. Just to give you one example, I didn't have any clue up until that stage what I should be doing vocationally. I'd gone through a whole phase of being involved in different things, different different jobs, and I remember as a youngster I had all these dreams. In fact, I wanted to do all the typically gay things. So I wanted to be an air steward, I wanted to be a travel rep, I wanted to be an actor, I went off to, to audition for, for drama school. I'm not saying, by the way, if you want to be any of these things, that means you're gay, please don't misunderstand me. But those were the typically gay things when I was growing up. So I was a bit lost, really, in terms of what I was meant to be doing vocationally. But I remember on that day... Uh, having a really clear conviction that God was wanting me to go and uh, teach his word, uh, the word that had worked so powerfully in, in turning my own life around to teach that to other people. Uh, I didn't know what quite what that meant at that stage, but I remember saying to this guy, the day I became a Christian, I want to be a missionary, what do I do? And he said, well, probably you need to hold on for a little while, you just become a Christian. That was good advice, but you never want to hear that when you're a young Christian because you think you know everything. Um, but I did hold on, and then a few years later I went uh, up to London to study at Bible College and then went on to serve in a church over in East London where I served as an assistant minister and youth worker for a number of years and then subsequently as the pastor of that church. And that was before joining the staff of the True Freedom Trust uh, four years ago now and uh, then took over as the director of that organisation three years ago. Let me tell you a little bit about True Freedom Trust and then we're going to get into our question. True Freedom Trust is basically an organisation, Christian ministry, that uh, is passionate about two things. Firstly, helping Christians to think biblically and compassionately about the whole area of sexuality, particularly same-sex attraction. So we do an awful lot of teaching in churches, in Bible colleges, in Christian unions, in youth groups, in schools, uh, really uh, trying to communicate a biblical view of sexuality, but also a grace-filled view. We believe you can be both full of grace and full of truth uh, as you think about issues of sexuality. Uh, so we do that a lot of teaching, but we also work then with individuals who are struggling in these areas. So that will be people who, like myself perhaps, have come out of a background, being involved in a same-sex relationship or uh, just in, in any sense being involved in any kind of gay lifestyle. Or in fact, more of the people that we support will be Christians who perhaps have never been involved in, in a same-sex relationship but have been conscious of a struggle in this area. And we seek to provide biblical encouragement and, and pastoral support. And uh, I'll put up at the end of the talk uh, details of our website where you might want to uh, go and have a look. There's an awful lot of information on there and testimonies and articles and so on, ways that you can support us and pray for us as a ministry, which we would really appreciate. Okay, well, let's uh, move on now to think about uh, the first of our uh, three questions. What are the causes of uh, same-sex attraction? Well, there's a wide-ranging consensus among most of the respected experts in this field that we need to accept what is uh, known technically as a multi-causation model. In plain English, that simply refers to a recognition that there are a number of different factors which contribute to how our sexual attractions and desires uh, develop. Okay, a number of different factors. So some people will focus on biological and uh, genetic factors. Now, the the, the fact is there is uh, no one gene or set of genes that in and of themselves have been discovered, if you like, that make somebody gay. Okay, that is is a fact. It simply isn't there. People have made various claims over the years, but there is no one gene or set of genes which in and of themselves uh, make somebody gay. Uh, An awful lot of research has been done into uh, the biological and genetic potential causes towards Uh, homosexual attractions. I think we we should be prepared to accept as Christians that there may well be 
biological and genetic factors, just as there would be, in fact, in every other part of our makeup. So the way we look is affected by genes. The, the, the temperament that we have can be affected by genes. And there's no reason to say that actually there can't be, in some measure, some uh, genetic factors that may influence the development of same-sex attraction. Now, some Christians have a real problem with that because they say, oh, well, what does that mean? Does that mean then that God makes people gay? Well, no, absolutely not. I don't think it means that at all. We need to remember as Christians that we're born into a fallen, broken world. Uh, not one of us here was born with a perfect set of genes. Now, some of you are looking really surprised at this point. I'm sorry to disappoint you. You were not born with a perfect set of genes. Uh, each of us are born into a fallen, sinful world. What did David, the psalmist, say? He said, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So even if it were proved one day, and personally I doubt that it ever will be, but if it were proved that there is a gay gene, that people are born with a fixed orientation, that doesn't lead us to conclude that therefore God makes people gay. It simply would be a reflection of the fact that we are born into a fallen, broken world. And in a fallen, broken world, every aspect of who we are is impacted by the fall, including our sexuality. So for some people that will, if you like, uh, be visible in terms of the fact that they're attracted to the same sex rather than the opposite sex. Uh, this is a quote here, I don't know if you can read that, uh, I can read it out if, if that would be helpful, but this is by a guy called Dr. Francis S. Collins, he's head of the Human uh, Genome Project, so this is a guy who really knows what he's talking about in this area, and he's referring here to a study that was undertaken of identical twins over in the USA. And basically this was where one of the twins was predominantly or exclusively attracted to those of the same sex. What was the likelihood that the other twin would also be predominantly or exclusively attracted to those of the same sex? And uh, he, he um, concluded, having looked at this study and finding that in fact uh, about 20% of the twins were actually same-sex attracted. And that was quite high because it was compared to 2-4% to of males in the general population indicating, he says, that sexual orientation is genetically influenced but not hardwired by DNA and that whatever genes are involved represent predispositions, not predetermination. I think that's a really helpful phrase, that phrase there, not hardwired by DNA. Okay, so it's not as simple as saying people are born either gay or straight. In fact, I want to challenge this evening and I want us all to think about this, challenge this whole concept of a, a, a binary model, if you like, of gay or straight, or possibly you'd have to add in a third of bi, as some people would call themselves bi. This whole idea that people have a fixed orientation is actually a little bit of a myth. Yes, it's true that most people, I would imagine most people here, uh, if we look at it as, as a spectrum, most people will be exclusively or predominantly attracted to those of the opposite sex. There will be some people, maybe even here, who will be predominantly or exclusively attracted to the same sex, a lot less people, but actually there'll be some people who will be somewhere in between. And actually, over our lifetimes, our sexual attractions can fluctuate as well. So I know of a number of people who, in their teens, have had some experience of same-sex attraction, perhaps have developed a crush, somebody of the same sex, but actually they've got into their 20s and beyond and found that there's no hint of same-sex desire. That's actually just proved to be a phase which has passed. This is one of the reasons I get really concerned when there's pressure on young people to come out and declare themselves to be gay. And, you know, in some schools, it's not uncommon, as I say, for people in their early teens, pre-teens even, to come out and declare that they're gay. And I think that's far too soon because it's not giving 
young people an opportunity to allow their sexuality and their sexual attractions to develop. So it's not as simple as saying that there is a gay gene, but certainly uh, we, we have to be open to the fact that, as with everything else, our sexual attractions can be influenced by genetic biological factors. Uh, other factors would include environmental factors. So this is all to do really with uh, upbringing. Um, and and what, what you find that often people's views get polarised really between these two causes. So it's what's often known as the nature-nurture debate. You've probably heard that and it relates to a number of other areas as well. This argument as to whether somebody is born gay or whether their environment and upbringing uh, makes somebody gay. So for example, environmental factors could include... Um, maybe somebody going to a same-sex school, a same-sex boarding school. Now, as it happens, I went to a same-sex boarding school from the age of 8 to 13, and as I look back on that time, I'm convinced personally that that had quite an influence in terms of how my own sexual attractions developed. Not least I can remember, this was in Oxford, where I was born and brought up, and um, remember on a Saturday morning we were told that we were allowed to go out into Oxford and look around the shops after school, would you believe, on a Saturday morning, horrendously. Uh, we were allowed to go out and look around the shops. and We had to go in a group of a minimum of four boys, said the head. And whatever you do, whatever you do, under no circumstances, talk to girls. That was the instruction given. So just remember, this is now a group of sort of prepubescent, almost adolescent boys, hormones raging all over the place, don't direct any of that towards girls. That was the message that was being given out. And you can see how that's an unhelpful start, if you like, to uh, an adolescent. Now, I cannot take that experience, and I, as I say, there are lots of factors which I think played a part in my life, but I can't take that and say, well, same-sex schools clearly make people gay. It's not as simple as that. In fact, most of the people who went to that same school, some of us here maybe have been to same-sex schools, and it has no influence at all on how our sexual attractions develop. But certainly in my case, I believe it did, and it may well be a factor for certain people. Other factors, for example, I know of a number of people who've grown up in an all-female environment. This is boys growing up in an all-female environment, or indeed girls growing up in an all-male environment. That tends to happen slightly less. But if you take the example of maybe a boy growing up and, and dad has left, and he's maybe got a couple of sisters, so it's mum and a couple of sisters, that's the only influence he has in the home as he grows up. And for some people, that seems then to affect the way that their sexual attractions develop. But again, you've got to be very careful because there are equally as many people, maybe even more people, who have been born into that situation or find themselves in that situation, but who it's not impacted their sexual, sexual attractions at all. And then uh, relational factors. Now this is, uh, again, a lot of this is, is, is theory. It's very difficult to prove one way or another. Research has been done around this area. But this is, this is to do now with relationships, mainly within the family, but also with, with peer groups. So, for example, there are some people who are convinced that not having a very good relationship with their same-sex parents uh, influences their sexuality. So I've certainly, within my work in Truth Room Trust, I've met a number of guys who, for one reason or another, have not had a great relationship with Dad, and uh, they seem to think that that has uh, influenced the way that their sexual attraction developed. The same with girls, not having a very good relationship with mum. Very difficult to prove this. Certainly it is quite a recurring theme amongst people who struggle in this area. But of course, just because there's a link doesn't mean there's necessarily a, a, that, that, that's a cause. Okay? Link doesn't necessarily mean cause. But it certainly does seem to crop up. One of my fears in this area is that it can lead to a sort of blame-the-parents culture. Oh, well, it's, it's my dad's fault because he wasn't there for me. 
Uh, what we're saying is it could be a factor for certain people, but it's not meant then to lead to blame and say, well, it's because of this that uh, this has impacted me. Another area of relational factors uh, could be the, uh, abuse. I mean, I've known of a number of people, for example, who've suffered abuse in their uh, early years. And you can imagine, for example, take, for example, a, a woman who's maybe been abused by somebody of the opposite sex. You can imagine how easily that could lead to her maybe growing up almost hating and fearing the opposite sex. And I've known of a number of women who said to me, that it's actually, I feel much safer with another woman. So in other words, they've been driven into the security of a relationship with another woman because of that early experience with an abusive man. I've known of women in their later years who have been very happily married and had children, had no hint of same-sex desire, but then in their later years have developed same-sex attraction, sometimes in their 40s and 50s. Likewise, that can happen too with men. So there are a number of different factors that can play a part. Uh, one writer very helpfully says this, talking about this multi-causation model, this would mean that the form and strength of each person's same-sex desire has a distinctive, perhaps unique mix of biological and psychological factors. And it may be better to speak of homosexualities in the plural. I hope you can see the point that's being made there. He's, he's basically saying, look, each of us are unique. We're, we're, we're knit together in our mother's womb. So different factors are likely to influence different people in different ways. So there is no one theory that fits everybody. You can't simply say this is what causes somebody to be same-sex attracted. It is not as simple as that. There are lots of different factors that can contribute. Okay, well you may come back uh, to that subject in some of the questions and uh, pick things up from that. But for now, let's uh, think secondly. What does the Bible teach about uh, same-sex practice? Well, the first thing I think I need to say is that the Bible does only ever speak about same-sex practice. Okay? It never ever talks in terms of uh, orientation. That simply is not a biblical concept at all. So there is no reference in the Bible to people being gay. There's no reference in the Bible actually to people being straight or bisexual. That simply is not a biblical concept. The Bible only talks in terms of sexual practice and it's basically divided into two camps. There is sexual practice that is pleasing to God and sexual practice that is displeasing to God. Sexual practice that is pleasing to God is sex that takes place within the context of a heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman. Sexual practice that is displeasing to God is any sex that takes place outside of that context. That's the simplest way that I can put it to you this evening. So there is not this emphasis in the, in the Bible on homosexual practices somehow being the worst of the worst. You may have picked up over your past in, in teaching and so on this word abomination. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I think sometimes as Christians we, 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 we grow up with this feeling that, that homosexual practice is somehow the worst sin of all. Some people say, is it, is it the unforgivable sin? And uh, that's not at all the emphasis in the Bible. The emphasis in the Bible is on God ruling out any and all sexual practice that takes place outside of heterosexual marriage. So in fact, what, what, what the Bible is concerned about is the fact that uh, sex has been given by God as a good gift to be enjoyed exclusively within marriage. That's the emphasis in the Bible. I remember once hearing a, a, a quote from a woman called Lynn Lavner. Uh, Lynn Lavner is... Uh, 
uh, an American and she's a comedian. She's a, a Jewish lesbian comedian. You're probably not used to hearing Jewish lesbian comedians quoted. Uh, you may wonder, what on earth is he doing reading that kind of literature? Look, it's my job, okay? I read all kinds of things. I'm allowed to. Um, but Lynn Lavner, she's making a, a, a tongue-in-cheek point here, but she actually has a very serious point. She says there are six admonishments in the Bible to homosexual practice. That's slightly debatable, but it's certainly less than ten. And 362 admonishments to um, heterosexual um, uh, sin. That doesn't mean, she says, that God doesn't love heterosexuals. It's just that they need more supervision. <laughs> now, I like that comment. You see the point she's making? She's just seeking to redress uh, the balance. So I want to suggest to you this evening that actually one of the key verses, well, the key verse, in fact, on sexuality is found in Genesis 1-3. Genesis 1-3 provides what we could call a foundation for developing a theology of sexuality. And I think it's really important when we're trying to debate these issues and maybe discuss with friends uh, the Bible's teaching on sexuality that we don't just run to these half a dozen or so verses that mention same-sex practice, but that we actually speak from the overall teaching of the Bible. And, and that's why I'm saying that we need to develop what I call a theology of sexuality. So we understand God's purpose for sex within the Bible. And so the key verse I suggest to you this evening is actually this verse in Genesis 2, verse 24. And I realise here we're jumping in right at the end of the creation account. I don't really have time to go into all of the contents. I just would ask you to, to bear with me and to accept that uh, this is a key verse and you might want to look that up later and, and do a little bit of study around it. But here, if you like, is God's um, declaration, uh, invention uh, of marriage. Here is his definition, what we could call a theological definition of marriage. And there are three elements to it. Listen to Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to, or united to, some versions say, his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice then the three elements. Here's what defines a marriage theologically. Firstly, there is a man leaving his father and mother. That means leaving his birth family, his own family, in order to set up a new family unit. So there's a definite transition, if you like, from his own family to set up a new family. There's then a holding fast to or a uniting to his wife. So again, that suggests a, a, a ceremony, or something formal, not something casual, not just we move in, we're getting on well, let's live together. No, there's something very definite. There's a, there's a uniting to, what the Bible will later call marriage, of course. And then you notice then and only then they shall become one flesh. And there's the reference to sexual union. That one flesh uh, sexual union is meant, if you like, uh, as the cement uh, which God uses to deepen and strengthen a relationship between a man and his wife. Now, why do I say that is a key verse? Well, the reason I say it's a key verse is because when you get through to the New Testament, what you discover, and I've given you three references there, and what you discover is that actually Genesis 2.24 is... Uh, repeated and reinforced in the New Testament. So, for example, Matthew chapter 19, Ma um, Jesus there is being questioned by the Pharisees on the subject of divorce, and in answering that question, Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24 word for word, okay? Thereby reiterating that marriage is the only place for love and attraction to express themselves sexually. You'll find that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, he also quotes Genesis 2:24 word for word. And it is a really sound principle of biblical interpretation that when New Testament writers bring forward and reiterate something from the Old Testament, 
that that means it's not something we can simply dismiss today, as some would urge us to do, and say, oh, well, it's culturally irrelevant. Things have changed today. No, Genesis 2.24 was valid in Moses' day. It was valid in Jesus and the Apostles' day. It's valid in our day too. So I like to think as Genesis 2.24, uh, rather like if you imagine the Bible here, and Genesis 2.24 is like a thread that you can pull right the way through the Bible, beginning in Genesis, right the way through the Old Testament, through Leviticus, where you have an awful lot of teaching on sexuality, and right the way through to the New Testament, um, where when you come to the New Testament, you come across this word, uh, this term, sexual immorality. And sexual immorality is actually uh, a translation of a Greek word, porneia, porneia. And porneia in the Greek really carries with it the meaning of any sex outside of heterosexual marriage. That's really the, what's behind that word porneia. So porneia, for example, would include incest. It would include prostitution. It would include uh, lust. It would include same-sex practice. It would include adultery. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus never talked about gay people. He never mentioned homosexuality. Well, that's not strictly true. Because if you look at Matthew 7, for example, uh, Jesus is talking there about things that come out of our hearts, that make us unclean, impure. And Jesus, in, 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 in speaking from in Mark 7, uses that term pornei. And any first century Jew, hearing Jesus use that word, would have understood him to be meaning all sex outside of heterosexual marriage, whether that be same sex or opposite sex. So Genesis 2.24, I suggest to you, is the key verse. That's our foundation. And what I want to do then is just look at two of the specific references. We're not going to look at every single one of the references that mention same-sex practice. I'm just going to take two as an example. And the first is Leviticus 18, verse 22. Now this is the one which, of course, is familiar to many people. Uh, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an uh, abomination. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I find that sometimes this is the phrase that is latched onto in, by some Christians. Certainly, this is uh, when you're talking to people maybe who are outside of the church, those who identify as gay. You know, th- this is maybe what they have heard in the past. And uh, this thought that uh, homosexuality is an abomination. And therefore, it gives the impression that we're saying that actually it's uh, the worst of the worst. But I want to issue a little challenge to you uh, this evening. I want to suggest that after tonight, at some stage, you go home and you do a little um, concordance search of that word abomination. Or if you're using the NIV, it will probably be translated detestable. So detestable or an abomination. Do a little word search and see what you come up with. Uh, You might be quite surprised. So, for example, there are a number of different verses in Proverbs that suggest that things such as lying are an abomination to God. Uh, Haughty eyes, that is proud eyes, eyes that look down upon other people, gay people perhaps, that's an abomination to God. Uh, There's a verse in Proverbs that says that uh, anyone who who turns a deaf ear to God's words, in other words, you read something in the Bible and you think, oh dear, that's a bit tough. I'll tell you what, I'll give that a miss and I'll have a time of prayer instead. And then praise, says this verse, their prayers are an abomination to God. Isn't that quite scary? None of us have ever done that before. Dodgy weighing scales are an abomination to God. Dodgy weighing scales. Some of you are looking really worried now. It's not bathroom scales, don't worry. <laughs> We're talking here, weights and measures, okay? Just, just, just for the sake of clarity. But you see the important point here. The important point is we mustn't get carried away. And some Christians, I think, in the past have got really carried away and they sort of zoom in on this word abomination. And, and particularly if we're using it selectively, 
to apply to one particular sin, whereas in fact the Bible would apply it to all kinds of sins. As I say, I issue that challenge just to have a little search through Proverbs and, and to, to dwell on some of those verses in, in there. Now, of course, the other argument about uh, a verse like Leviticus, and this is an argument that's often put to me, is, well, look, you Christians, it's all very well, you, you, but you're selective with the way you treat the Old Testament. So you take certain things from Leviticus and you say, well, that applies today, but then other things you say, well, no, that doesn't apply today. Uh, so, for example, most... Uh, Christians I know would be quite happy eating a BLT sandwich or a packet of prawn cocktail crisp. But what about the teaching in Leviticus that says we shouldn't eat pork and we shouldn't eat shellfish? Now, how do we how do we sort of uh, bring those two things together and reconcile them? Or what about that verse in in, um, uh, in Leviticus that talks about not wearing clothing? made of mixed fibres. We could do a little exercise tonight and check each other's labels. We won't. It will get very embarrassing. We're not going to do it. But, you know, why isn't the church speaking out about the abomination of polycotton shirts? Now, again, it, it can make us smile, but actually it's a very serious point. How do we argue this? How do we answer that kind of question? Well, the great news is that actually Jesus hasn't left us in the dark. He's made it very clear how we're to interpret the Old Testament. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law. So he's not come simply to dismiss it, but he has come, he says, to fulfil it. That means to complete it, to fill it up, we could say. So surely when we're deciding which of the Old Testament laws no longer apply to God's people, Christian people today, we have to consider which of them Jesus has fulfilled through his coming into the world and his death on the cross. That's the basis. So let me give you an example. On that basis... Uh, we can say with confidence that none of the sacrificial laws have to be followed by Christians today. I mean, I didn't see anybody sacrificing a pigeon or anything as you came through the door today to make yourself clean. Why don't we do that? Well, we don't do that because the writer of Hebrews tells us Christ died once for all. It's not that Jesus has abolished the law. He has fulfilled it. He is the fulfilment of all of that Old Testament teaching on sacrifice and ritual. So actually now as Christians... We have the freedom to come to God directly through Christ. We don't have to make sacrifices. Uh, another example, on that basis, we know that we can, with confidence, eat a BLT sandwich or prawn cocktail crisp or whatever it is we might like. How do we know that? Well, because Mark 7, verse 19, Jesus declared all foods clean. Okay? So that's the basis on which we interpret the Old Testament. But... I would challenge anybody to find anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus now declares all sexual practices now clean. Look through the Gospels. It simply isn't there. In fact, in all of the teaching in the Old Testament, everything that Jesus teaches, everything that the Apostles teaches, it backs up everything that's taught in the Old Testament. So it backs up that Genesis 2.24 principle. It backs up the Levitical uh, holiness code, if you like, which is the, 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 the way that God's people were to be holy. And one of the ways in which God's people are to be holy is through sexual morality. And that's not being fulfilled, if you like, by Christ, because actually Jesus teaches, his apostles teach, that today we are to flee from sexual immorality. We're to avoid sexual Immorality. So I hope that just helps a little bit, maybe when we're discussing these issues with friends. So that's one from the Old Testament. Let's just take one from the uh, New Testament. This is a passage we looked at in, in some detail this morning, and I don't want to look at it in detail now, and I think that will be on the uh, Caragline website, will it, at some stage? So if you want to hear a little bit more about this passage, I want to very briefly touch on it. A um, couple of things. Firstly, I want you to notice that... Um, 
same-sex practice here, uh, it's, uh, this is the ESV version and it's a paraphrase, men who practice homosexuality. And there's a little bit on this morning's teaching about uh, the, the, the two words that have been translated there, or paraphrased, men who practice homosexuality. But I want you to notice that that is listed alongside a number of other sinful practices. Okay? And Paul is not highlighting men who practice homosexuality and saying it's worse. He's actually listing it alongside, notice, things such as greed and drunkenness, reviling or slandering. They're all listed there as marks, if you like, This is those who continuously and consistently live in these kinds of ways. These are the marks that they're going to display. But the main thing I want you to notice from this passage is actually that there's a great uh, challenge and a great message of hope in there. Because having listed these various sinful behaviours, look what Paul says, this is in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. Now remember, he's writing here to Christian people, not to the world, but to Christians. Another translation puts it, some of you once lived this way. But, he says, you were washed, that is made clean, sanctified, made holy, justified, brought into a right relationship with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul is saying that actually, look, in the church in Corinth, Nearly 2,000 years ago, there were Christians who had come from all of these kinds of backgrounds, including some who had been practicing homosexuality. But they're not outside the church. They're not alienated from the church. They're actually inside the church. They're in the church because they've had a saving, life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. And the implication, of course, of him saying, such were some of you, is that, look, you, you used to live these kinds of ways but you don't live those ways anymore because of what's happened to you in Christ Jesus. So actually that should give great hope perhaps to those Christians that we know or maybe those Christians here this evening who struggle in this area. Be encouraged because actually this is, Paul is wanting to encourage you and say, look, you've actually been redeemed, you've been rescued. You're on a level with every other Christian who's come from all these other kinds of backgrounds as well. But it also sends out, I think, a great challenge to the church that actually we shouldn't have a situation where the gay community, to use that phrase, is completely alienated and separated from the church. If the church is being authentic and and is preaching the gospel to all kinds of people, then really in our churches we should have people who used to identify as gay, but who don't anymore because of that encounter with Jesus Christ. And it's really on that note of hope that I want to conclude this evening as we think about our final question Uh, before we move through to a break and then to to, uh, your questions. And it's this question, what hope does the Gospel then hold out to those for whom this is a personal issue? Is there a Gospel for the person who perhaps right now is identifying as gay, lesbian, bi, maybe is involved in a same-sex relationship? Is there a Gospel for the Christian who is struggling in this way and wondering how on earth can God still love them? Even you know they keep slipping up and falling and struggling in this area. Can God still love them? Is there a gospel for the Christian who struggles in this way? Well, I want to suggest to you absolutely yes, 100%. The gospel is good news for all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of struggles. It's really sad when sometimes as Christians, and we all do this, we're all in danger of doing it, we can write off, can't we, certain people. Maybe it's that person that you work with, maybe it's that neighbour, maybe it's even that family member who seems to be so far away from God and we just cannot envisage God possibly reaching out to that person. And yet so often that is the very person 
that God will be touching and, and putting his hand on and saying, I want you, I want you in my kingdom. So let's not ever write anybody off. God is in the business of rescuing people that we might consider to be at the most unlikely of all. Remember, the whole ministry of Jesus was focused on reaching out to the marginalised and the alienated, those that other people often had rejected and written off. And I want to give you three ways in which I believe the gospel is good news, particularly for those who struggle in this whole area of same-sex attraction. Firstly, it is good news of a new beginning. Good news of a new beginning. So to uh, Corinthian Christians, whereas, remember, we've just seen there were those, some of whom had come from a background of being involved in same-sex practice. Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now I need to be absolutely clear that what Paul is not promising in that verse, he's not promising to the person who struggles with same-sex trash or the person who's in a same-sex relationship, you come to Christ and miraculously overnight uh, you're transformed into a full-blooded heterosexual and you go on and you get married and 2.4 children and move into a detached house, get a nice car, a plasma TV and a dog and so on. He's not promising that. That may happen, okay, but it's very unlikely to happen. It's certainly unlikely to happen in that way. Um, as regards myself, I, as I said, I was in a same-sex relationship before I came to Christ. Uh, I have not gone on to get married. I have not been, quote, healed or cured of uh, same-sex attraction, nor do I think that's particularly helpful language to use, really, in this context. I've certainly had people pray for me and uh, pray over me. I uh, went forward at one prayer meeting and um, a, a pastor prayed over me. I went forward and whispered, look, I'm struggling with homosexuality. I'd like to be set free. He said, brother, you have been set free from your homosexuality, in rather a loud voice, which was quite embarrassing. Uh, you should go home now. And he said, just live out your straight life. Believe it, claim it by faith. That was what he assured me. And so as a young Christian, I went home and I believed it and I claimed it by faith. And it lasted, I think, about 20 minutes before I realised that actually nothing had changed at all. Um, I think I remember watching a film with Matt Damon and thinking, well, he's still as nice looking as he was before, so clearly God hasn't taken it away at all. Um, but that's very dangerous, isn't it, when, when, when people are making those kinds of promises. God does not normally not normally intervene in that kind of way. I'm not to say that he can't, but he doesn't normally intervene in that kind of way. So that's not what Paul is promising. What he is saying is that, look, if you have lived a life, you've been involved in same-sex practice, or you've had gay relationship, whatever it may be, if you come to Christ, you are guaranteed a new beginning. In fact, he's saying to anybody who's strayed in whatever way from God's purposes for sex and marriage, whether that be homosexually or heterosexually, come to Christ, the slate is wiped completely clean full and free forgiveness in Christ. That means that the person who has struggled in this way, been involved in the same situation, doesn't need to carry guilt or shame. There is often an awful lot of guilt and shame wrapped up uh, in this whole area of homosexuality. But Paul is saying, look, no, you have a new beginning. You have been forgiven. You have been freed from, if you like, the, the, the consequences of that past life. And over time, of course, God, by his Holy Spirit, as he dwells within a new believer, does bring about transformation in terms of behaviour. So I can't say that God has taken away my same-sex attraction, but what he has done is, over the years, and I've been a Christian now some 20 years, he has been at work transforming me. So he's taught me that it's possible to be self-controlled. I haven't done that perfectly in all the years I've been a Christian, but little by little God has been teaching me that it is possible to be self-controlled, that it's not essential to life 
to be in a sexual relationship. And I think that's quite shocking for our culture. We're in a very sexualised culture. And I feel for young people particularly, there's a real pressure to be in a sexual relationship at a very young age. And actually it is not essential to life. And I think we need to be shouting that, in a sense, as Christians. Uh, Remember the Lord Jesus. He was the perfect man, the most fulfilled man you could ever meet. Yet he was never married. He wasn't in a sexual relationship. So it's good news of a new beginning, but let's be clear on what that does mean and what it doesn't mean. Secondly, it's good news of a new community. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that when we become Christians, uh, from whatever background, we are, of course, adopted into God's family. We become sons and daughters of God. Well, in fact, we all become sons of God, but I'm not going to go there this evening. You can ask Johnny about that. He can do a series on why we're all sons of God, if he hasn't already. Um, But we all are adopted into God's family. We all are are given the benefits of being a son of God, an adopted son of God. And really, this new community ought to be marked out by love and acceptance and burden-bearing and deep friendship and support so that when somebody comes into the church from whatever background they are received with love and accepted. Now, when we talk about acceptance, I don't mean accepting sinful behaviour, but actually at the beginning, if you think about it, a Christian who comes from one of these kinds of backgrounds is going to have an ongoing struggle. They're not going to have a perfect Christian life. They are going to have battles, and they're going to slip up, and they're going to fall, and they're going to fail. And they're going to need an awful lot of love and patience and encouragement and friendship. It's going to be really important. If you think about it, particularly the Christian who has come from a background of same-sex attraction, who finds that God doesn't take that away, that they don't develop opposite-sex attraction, they potentially then are facing a life of being single. That's the reality. Let's not sort of hold back about that. That is the potential reality for many Christians who struggle in this way. They may not be able to get married. They may then uh, be facing a life of singleness. And they need support and encouragement. I think it's really important, in fact, that the church is very positive about singleness. I consider my singleness now to be a gift from God the Bible talks about it in terms of it being a gift I haven't always thought that way it's taken time for me to learn to accept that this is actually a gift it gives me freedom that other Christians don't have freedom in ministry freedom in lots of different ways Uh, and I think the church needs to be very positive about singleness and not putting pressure on people who are single to get married Uh, and I lost count really the number of times when I first went into Christian ministry in a church and I was a sort of assistant minister and I was in my 20s and people were forever trying to set me up uh, with somebody of the opposite sex and and, you know if you're single here you know how this works you get invited out to Sunday lunch and there they are they're all lined up aren't they on the opposite side of the table all the eligible people of the opposite sex and it's just the sort of mint sauce and the salt and pepper separating you from this life of bliss and commitment or uh, as a pastor, of course, one of, the, one of the many duties you have as a pastor is um, you know, conducting uh, funerals and uh, weddings and baby dedications, thanksgivings, wh- whatever you may call them, or as one of my colleagues calls it, hatch, match and dispatch, which I think is not a very, <laughs> not a very nice way to, to, to shorthand for it. But um, I remember getting to the stage where as a minister, I almost, and you may find this a bit warped, but bear with me, I almost began to prefer taking the funerals. And you think, what? what, what would, how could any minister prefer to take a funeral? Well, generally, because what I used to find at a funeral is that people didn't sidle up to me at the end and say, ooh, Jonathan, you could be next. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that people don't tend to say that at funerals? I never wondered why. Could it be that it would be a little bit insensitive to do that at a funeral? 
Well, I want to suggest in all seriousness, actually it's really insensitive to do it at a wedding too, because it actually puts people under pressure. And there are lots, I know lots of Christians who are single and they're they're sort of moving into their 20s and 30s and feeling a real pressure. Some of them want to be married, some of them just haven't found the right person. Uh, There there can be a whole number of reasons why people are not married or why, why a young person isn't in a relationship. And I think if we're constantly putting people under pressure in that way, it actually really doesn't help. And I think, you know, I try to encourage younger people, look, while you're not in a relationship, enjoy being single. It's an enjoyable time of life. It should be an enjoyable time of life. So we need to be really positive about singles. If we're going to have this new community, we need to recognise that some people within that community, and it won't necessarily because they're struggling with same-sex attraction, could be for a whole host of reasons, won't be married. Some, of course, will be divorced. Some will be widowed. Um, And we need to be as welcoming to the single person as we are to the married person. So uh, the gospel is good news of a new beginning, good news of a new community. And finally, and very briefly, it is good news of a new world. When somebody comes to faith in Christ, the reality is that we don't know what God may choose to do in that individual's life. Some people do want to get married. They come out of this uh, background of a same-sex practice, or they may be, as a Christian, have grown up with a same-sex struggle, and actually they're longing to be married. And I've had the joy of supporting a number of people, in fact, attending the marriages of a number of people who have had this struggle but have gone on to get married. And, and, and when I see that happening, for me, that's fantastic. Absolutely rejoice when that happens. I think of a good friend of mine at Bible College who once vowed to me that he would never be able to get married because of his own. So I remember him saying to me, Jonathan, don't worry, I'm not going to abandon you. I'll always be here for you as a friend. I'm never going to be able to get married. And he is now married, and we are still good friends, so that's good as well. But I just rejoice with him. You know, he has had that experience of God transforming his attractions to such an extent that he's been able to go on and get married. He has a lovely, godly wife, knows about his struggle, two beautiful children. That's absolutely wonderful. But that isn't going to be the reality for many people. In fact, I have to say, in my experience, it's not the reality for most people who struggle in this way. Most people are not going to have that experience of finding their sexual attractions changing to such an extent that they'll be able to get married. Some do, and certainly we can pray for people and we can support people, but we need to be realistic with people. And we certainly need to be careful not to make false promises. We cannot promise someone, don't worry, God will, you know, God will lead you to someone of the opposite sex. God will take away those desires. We simply don't know. That is not a gospel promise. And I've sadly had to work with a number of people who are kind of casualties at the side of the Christian road. And I, this is in all kinds of areas, actually, not just in the area of sexuality, where, they, where they've been promised that if they have enough faith, God will do this or God will take this away. And it's very dangerous teaching because that isn't a gospel promise. What the gospel does promise And this is the hope that I have, and it's the hope that a number of people who struggle in this area have. What the Gospel does promise is that a day is coming when God is going to rise from his throne, and in great glory he's going to say, Behold, I make everything new. And on that day, we're assured that uh, we'll, all of us, if we're trusting in Jesus Christ, be new people in a new world. And it's a world where there'll be no more sin, no more mourning, no more death, no more crying, no more pain for the old order of things will have been taken away. And on that day, every single one of us, whatever our particular struggle, let's be honest, as Christians, we all have our struggles here tonight. It may not be in the area of sexuality, it may be in a whole number of different areas. But whatever our struggle, we will be able to say that uh, my past struggles are simply not worth comparing to the glory now revealed in me. And I suggest to you that is the great hope 
of the gospel. That is the greatest hope we can have in walking alongside someone who struggles in this way. We can be a friend to them now. We can reassure them of that new beginning. We can welcome them into the new community. But ultimately, we're assuring them that there is a new world to come when there will be no more struggle of any kind. And that, I suggest to you, is the great hope of the gospel. I have gone beyond my time, so I'm going to be quiet now. And Johnny, are you going to come and talk about the questions? Thanks, uh, Jonathan. Um, we're going to have tea and coffee now served from the hatch. Um, we have gone over time a little bit, so if you want a cup of tea and coffee, please go and get that quickly. If you need the bathrooms, use the bathrooms as well. But during this break, for 10 minutes, um, if you do have a question, um, then just simply write it on the piece of paper. There are the, a, a yellow sticky pad, are they around? There, Rob has them at the back. Um, so they'll be at the back there. If you have a question, just write it on one of those uh, yellow sticky labels and give it to me and then we will put those... Because some of you might not want to ask questions publicly. If you're happy to ask them publicly, that's fine. But if you have a question, just write it on that pad and pass them on to me and we'll, we'll go from there. So quickly, tea and coffee. Uh, just ten minute break and I'm going to bring you back pronto on that. Thanks. I'll also, I'll also leave a yellow label at the front here because there's some at the back and some here. <laughs>